Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 19th of July, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to have Vanessa Beely from Damascus. We also have Debbie Evans, our very own nursing correspondent. And we have a guest. Let's try again. Vanessa, over to you. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yes, loud and clear. Oh, good. <laughs> So basically, we, we, we started talking about the situation in northern Syria, which has been heating up for the last two weeks with the buildup of uh, Russian and Syrian Arab army troops. Uh, and in the last 48 hours, uh, there's been claims by uh, the Americans that a Russian fighter jet uh, flew dangerously close to a U.S. warplane over Syria. Uh, and just moving on to the next section, Brian. Um, so a Russian fighter jet, according to uh, American reports, flew very close to a U.S. surveillance aircraft over Syria and gassing in the northeast, forcing it to go through the turbulent wake and putting the lives of the four American crew members in danger. So while the U.S. is illegally occupying and has uh, illegal uh, military bases and air bases uh, in Syria, it's blaming Russia for putting its uh, military personnel at risk. Um, and then just uh, moving on, there were previous cases. I always find this language quite amusing that a Russian fighter jets are harassing US drones over Syria twice in 24 hours. A Russian Su-35 forced two French uh, Rafales to take evasive maneuvers over the Iraq-Syria border on Thursday as the Pentagon warned of increasing harassment by Russia. I would also note here that Russia has also been bombing the terrorist positions around the Altanif US military base, unlawful military base in the southeast. Uh, there are claims by Washington also that Russia and Iran are quietly coordinating in Syria to pressure the US to leave Syria, um, which again is uh, under international law perfectly acceptable that the US stops occupying Syrian territory and resources. And then moving on, we have a statement, which is an extraordinary statement from the US uh, Defense Department about the use of cluster bombs by Russia in Syria. Let's roll that. You know, there's been reporting that the Russians are using cluster munitions uh, in Syria. Uh, which we also find to be irresponsible. These, these munitions will, uh, uh, they have a high dud rate, uh, they can uh, cause damage, to, they can hurt civilians, uh, and they're just, uh, you know, not good. The same cluster bombs, of course, that the U.S. is currently supplying to Ukraine, but Russia uses them, they're bad, America uses them, they're good. Um, and then let's have a look at uh, the uh, news section uh, on the buildup of American troops in northeast Syria. 2,500 10th Division soldiers off to combat. Members of the 2nd Brigade combat team heading to Iraq and Syria. Today, the division held a ceremony officially marking the deployment. 7 News reporter Chad Charette was there. <laughs> Friday morning, soldiers geared up for deployment overseas. Commanding officers wished them well. This combat deployment is significant. It's significant for the soldiers and the families of this brigade, for the 10th Mountain Division, and for the United States Army, 
because once again, we are called to lead the way and to start another climb to glory. 2,500 members of the 2nd Brigade Combat Team will be spending the next nine months in Iraq and Syria as part of Operation Inherent Resolve, an ongoing military operation to defeat the Islamic State. They're well-trained, they've been there before, uh, and we have recently seen this division, and so they're, they're, they're going to succeed. But before their departure, a ceremony symbolically sending off soldiers. Attendees bowed their heads for an invocation. Then, soldiers led by Colonel Scott Wentz cased, furled, and placed the brigade's flag in a canvas covering to keep it safe for their trip overseas. Once the units are in theater, they will uncase their colors as they assume the fight. And for the folks back home, Colonel Brayman credits the North Country community for supporting brigade members' loved ones. Peace of mind for the soldiers overseas. We are fully integrated here in the North Country and they have nothing to worry about while they're gone, which makes them be able to focus on their mission, get home here sh shortly. A brigade ready for battle, deploying for nine months with loved ones waiting for them to come back home to the North Country. Chad Charette, 7 News. Of course, what is this doing? This is maintaining this fraudulent narrative that the U.S. is fighting ISIS, uh, whereas in reality, as these soldiers will find out when they arrive uh, in the Northeast, uh, ISIS is considered to be another proxy of uh, the U.S. forces uh, in Syria. At the same time, we've had visits by French delegations, uh, which has been condemned by Syria. I think there have been two, one on the 3rd of July and one uh, more recently. On the 10th of July, there's also been a Catalan delegation arriving in the last 48 hours uh, to, to negotiate or to speak um, with the Kurdish separatist factions in the Northeast, um, claiming uh, that the reason that they went there was to repatriate 25 children and 10 adult women from Northeast Syria who had uh, been with uh, ISIS, um, and not forgetting, of course, who has been a longtime supporter of the Kurdish separatist project uh, and the autonomous region in the Northeast is not only Victoria Newland um, from Washington, who of course was also responsible for the coup in uh, Ukraine in 2014, but uh, Bernard Henri Levy, of course, uh, also heavily involved in many other NATO interventionist sites here with uh, the Kurdish separatist uh, fighters in what they have named Rojava, which is in fact uh, northeast Syria. And at the same time, as all of this is going on, and as the US is obviously building up its military presence, not only in Syria, but also in Anbar in Iraq and in Jordan. What happens uh, the early hours of this morning, Brian, just uh, moving on to the next slide. Uh, Israel bombers at uh, half past midnight this morning. Uh, multiple missiles uh, came in extremely fast. I was woken up very unceremoniously. Uh, and these landed about three kilometers away from my house. So the sound was actually very loud. They hit a research and development uh, base very close to here. And one, we believe, one of the air defense uh, facilities also close to here. But this is a video which demonstrates that every time Israel attacks Syria, there are civilian casualties and losses. This is a young man returning home after the missile hit to find his home engulfed in flames. <laughs> راح بيتي 
As if Syria hasn't suffered enough, the civilians have to, to deal with this on top of all the other uh, hardships they're going through. Uh, Vanessa, thank you very much for taking us through, through that. Of course, the hypocrisy over the cluster weapons, just uh, phenomenal that somebody should, should uh, be there in front of a camera talking about the cluster weapons on the Russian side. This is terrible. But of course, if it's uh, the US pumping them into Ukraine, it's absolutely fine. Hypocrisy, but also the deployment of troops. And I would suspect that as things ramp up in, in uh, Ukraine, uh, very fierce fighting on most of the fronts and a lot of extra pressure from the Russians. Um, this is an attempt to uh, increase the pressure on the Russians in Syria itself. Do you, do you see it the same way or do you think there's another reason for this sudden activity? Well, the sudden activity has been going on for some time. But yes, I do think... Um, that there is potential now for, for another escalation on the Syrian front, either to try and distract Russia or on the basis that they think Russia is distracted in Ukraine. I, I mean, I can't get inside an American's head. It's very difficult. But um, certainly, you know, what they have demonstrated with the Captagon Act and all of these other acts and, and sanctions is that they are not going to release their hold on Syria um, without military escalation, basically. Okay, Vanessa, thank you for that. Obviously, a key uh, question is around the we. Who is the we? Who are they? Um, I'm going to say a big thank you to one of our audience that uh, sent in this, uh, in fact, video clip. We'll come on to it in a moment. But the article here is a Moldova, uh, former Moldova MP, Laurie Rosca. Um, he's talking about um, multipolarity, uh, but really he's talking about only one center of real power. I've broken this down into three little clips. Let's have a look at the first video clip. Allow me, I would like to start with my personal uh, intellectual bi biography. Uh, I was obliged to make a paradigm shift several times in my life. I started as Soviet child. Yeah, I was born in USSR. Uh, my first uh, paradigm shift was when I uh, understood the essence the, the dirty uh, essence of communism. When I became major, when I became student, I understood the uh, conflict be between USSR and the global communism and the liberal West, the free part of the world. Of course, I, of course, I, be I became anti-communist, anti-Soviet anti activist and journalist and politician and so on. And I was sure at that period, 35 years ago, that uh, my country must be part of collective West. Not my, not only myself, my generation uh, had the same way of thinking, the same vision. So there's a lot we can learn from these little clips because here is this man saying uh, very clearly, of course, he was born into a system which he initially believed and uh, was not good. Uh, but then he looks um, over the garden fence and the grass is greener on the other side and that grass is the collective West. Let's follow the clip through. It exists worst part of the world, the worst, yeah, Soviet communism, and Chinese communism and so on, and the Americans and Europeans who are our 
dream, yeah? our dream, political dream, imagination was limited in this kind of interpretation. Bipolarity, it means uh, good guys, bad guys. Yeah, We didn't understand in that period uh, the result of the Second World War. Who gained? No, no, not who won, who gained. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, after that, I, I used to be a uh, uh, street fighter and uh, I printed first uh, generation of leaflets and, and the clandestine newspapers and first meetings, uh, street protest, first uh, anti-communist party here in my country, Republic of Moldova. After that, I became a, a member of parliament four times, four times. I was twice uh, vice chairman of parliament. And I was during 30, uh, 25, I, I think, uh, years, uh, leader of party, Christian Democratic People's Party. So things begin to change and we'll do the final clip as we see the whole frame of reference shifted. And uh, what are we looking at? Things beyond the West and the collect collective West itself that are controlling the global agenda. I think it happens in 2006 or seven when I used to be a uh, member of joint committee EU Republic of Moldova. We traveled permanently in Brussels, in, uh, in other capitals, especially in Brussels. Uh, uh, and uh, I discovered that our partners are trying to change uh, family code and our constitution. It was the initial step in this total war against family, against normality, LGBT agenda. It was new for us. I was scandalized. I make a, a huge noise in Brussels. <laughs> My partners was uh, shocked because Yuri used to be so clever, so good freedom fighter for Americans and Europeans. Well, there we are. It changed and suddenly the West was not what he believed it to be. It was not the bastion of freedom. And of course, what he then perceived was an attack on the family. Well, I've taken a couple of um, paraphrase quotes here from this particular gentleman, but he says very clearly the enemy is Western economic. He calls it imperialism and new colonial colonialism. But he also talks about mental domination and domination in the media, which is uh, perfectly correct. And if we move on here, this is where we get to really interesting comment. The greatest shock came in 2020 with the COVID operation, when we were able to see that we only have one global center of real power. And who is he now starting to focus on? Well, here it is. One center of power, obvious. Who? The World Health Organization was able to make orders to make major world powers move. So are we simply in the realms of powerful countries uh, manipulating the people, uh, the pieces on the world stage? Or are we talking about agencies controlled by clearly very powerful people and money? who are controlling the nation states themselves. Uh, Debbie, we've introduced the World Health Organization, so that's probably a good opportunity to bring you in. Um, what have you got to tell us about what's coming in through uh, medicine and world health? Well, it's interesting. I think you, as far as I'm aware, this is gonna be a UK column exclusive. And we've been doing a lot of investigative work and research into this. And in a minute, I'm going to bring my great friend Cheryl Granger on and uh, we're going to try and make a little bit of sense of this. But in the meantime, I think what we're going to reveal is a significant plan, a plan that you may not have heard of, which has significant um, 
impact on what's going forward. Um, and we are going to present the evidence. So bear with me. These next few slides, there's going to be a few of them, and we're going to go quite quickly through them. It's just to present the methodology of what we found. So the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is how much money has gone into the development of mRNA COVID-19 vaccines from US public investment. So here we are looking at a link between the United States and the UK and actually Europe and pretty much a lot of other countries. So just to illustrate, Pfizer, um, 20.4 billion and Moderna, 10.8 billion was invested. If we then slip on to see about where does our NHS data go, so just keep those figures in mind, this article in the Financial Times. So let's have a look. Who is the NHS sharing data with? And if we go further into the article, which, by the way, was in 2021, we can see that 40 plus companies of the world's largest management consultancies um, are detailed and that they're sending detailed uh, medical records of patients from English hospitals. We've got 100 different NHS data sets. We've got McKinsey mentioned there, KPMG, Novavax, AZ, Experian, interestingly, as well. But it's not just that arterial route of data. It's also another GP surgery. So let's look at Centene. Centene are a United States health company. If we delve a bit deeper into Centene, we can see that they're an integrated, they're into, into the NHS integrated health systems. It's all part of Matt Hancock's plan. So let's look at the equivalent of the Department of Health in the UK. Let's look at the Department of Health and Human Services in the United States. This is headed by Xavier Becerra. Xavier Becerra, as you can see, is the 25th Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, the first Latino. I have to say, he's uh, also a lawyer. And as you probably recall, the Department of Health, our minister here, Steve Barclay, is also a solicitor. So let's have a quick look at the structure of the US um, Health Department. And you can see there that in, in red, I've highlighted ASPRA, which is the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response, and also the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. So let's look and go, let's have a look at ASPRA in particular. Now, you can see right at the top banner, it's the US Department for Health and Human Services, who have ASPRA underneath that umbrella, and underneath that umbrella are BARDA. Now, we've mentioned BARDA before, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. So who runs BARDA? Well, I'm going to put a, a screenshot up and you can freeze it. But all I really need to say is that Gary Disbro has a pedigree in vaccines, including smallpox and Ebola. So let's see what he's got planned for BARDA in their strategic plan going forward. We've got a little bit of video to show you. Hello, I am Gary Disbro, Director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. BARDA was established in 2006 to support the development of vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, and innovative technologies that could be used when a public health emergency occurs. The 2022 BARDA strategic plan builds on what we have learned and accomplished over the last 15 years. This five-year plan sets forth how we will continue to work with our private sector and government partners 
to further secure the nation against a wide range of threats to our national health security. The BARTA model has proven successful in leveraging public-private partnerships to accelerate development of medical countermeasures that are vital to national security. BARTA helps its partners from advanced research and development through FDA licensure and clinical use. During the next five years, BARTA has four strategic goals. Rapidly develop safe, effective medical countermeasures accessible to all Americans. Maintain a sustainable, mission-ready response posture. Leverage mechanisms to foster flexible partnerships. Build and support a world-class workforce. Our mission-ready posture to deliver life-saving medical countermeasures quickly in an emergency requires enhancing our workforce of highly skilled professionals who can support our unique public health mission. Since its inception, BARTA has supported over 60 FDA approvals, licensures, or clearances of products that increase domestic and global preparedness. Among these are vaccines, diagnostic tests, and therapeutics used to protect individuals during public health emergencies such as Zika, the Ebola outbreaks in West Africa, and the COVID-19 pandemic. We are excited to release our five-year strategic plan and look forward to working together with our interagency and private sector partners, our stakeholders, and our workforce, continuing to fortify the nation's health security over the next five years and beyond. So let's look at this continued link between the US and the UK in particular. So I went to their website and you'll see medicalcountermeasures.gov and you can see there the link with the FDA. So I'm just showing you that to draw you the link. If we move on to the BARDA strategic plan, um, and Cheryl's going to come and talk to us a little bit about that in a minute. I'm just highlighting there for you the link between BARDA, who are a public-private partnership, and have also got direct links straight into the FDA. So we, we need to remember that, remember the link between the FDA. Now, BARDA, public-private partnership. Now, I went back, they do a conference every year, but I went to look at the 2021 in, in particular. And who were they doing business with? Well, there you can see Stefan Bansal from Moderna. And also you can see, and I've, I've highlighted his autobiography, uh, his biography, Trevor Mundell from, Pres uh, from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I'm sure Hedley Reese's ears will be pricking up as I'm saying that. So let's just have another little bit of information as to what BARDA do. So BARDA gave Moderna up to $483 million for development of the COVID-19 vaccine. There's also um, a, a really good screenshot, actually, of what BARDA do with regards to COVID and how involved they are. So just freeze the screen on this, but you can see that they've had 140 COVID partnerships, 169 million has gone into diagnostic test kits, 65 billion has been awarded for vaccines. So there's some statistics for you. So how does BARDA link in with the UK? So I've... I've I've done this screenshot just to give you a, a little idea of the triangle here. So we've got BARDA, who are linked in with the FDA. So how do the FDA link in with the MHRA? What agreement do they have? 
Well, it's an agreement that's called a mutual recognition agreement. And this is where the FDA has got this agreement with the EU. So this is, this is also for um, people in Europe that are watching with the EMA and the United Kingdom, whereby the, uh, the regulatory approval doesn't need to be done by that sovereign country. So it means the MHRA can basically approve something that the FDA has already done. There's another article here just to, to show you from JD Supra so that you can see the new routes. Um, because this, this um, agreement, as you can see, ends in 2023. So we have to form a new agreement and we're forming new agreements with the FDA all the time. Another couple of just um, screenshots just to give you some information into how international the MHRA have become. They've also partnered with seven international partners. You can see them listed up there in the top right. And another example also is Project Orbis. And Project Orbis is coordinated by the US Food and Drug Administration, along with all of those other countries. So you can see there are some very, very heavy connections. And this is where I've, we've done a lot of work on this. And I've been very, very, I've been on the phone for many hours with Cheryl Granger and on Zoom. And at this point, I'm going to bring in Cheryl because Cheryl is going to explain what we found in a very simple and easy to understand way. Cheryl, thank you for agreeing to, to join us today and um, tell us what you found out and tell us in simple terms what you and I both have discovered. Thanks, Debbie. Um, I basically, uh, we put together a, a cartoon to kind of simplify this um, so that we can see the route through. Um, because you've just thrown a lot of information at everybody. Um, so I think if we keep it a bit more simple, it will become a little bit more clearly um, in everybody's mind. Um, so starting off with the US uh, government, um, they have a division, which is the Health and Human uh, Services Department, that's for Sarah, who's a lawyer, in fact. He's not a medic or a scientist. He's a lawyer, good at writing contracts. And he actually um, has a, a branch under him, which is this ASPRA, um, which is to do with preparedness um, and response. And then under them is BARDA. So BARDA is the Biomedical Advanced Research Authority. And they've been going for the last 16 years. This is their 16th year. So they've been doing this for a long time. And their remit is to protect people during public health emergencies. Um, so they're looking after chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and then... Uh, pandemic influenza and COVID-19 and emerging infectious diseases. And when you look at the strategic plan, it tends to be more concentrated on the disease areas. So um, it basically wants to achieve um, strengthening of the national health security through medical countermeasures. And each of these measures have got to be quick, sustainable. They've got to be ready, mission ready. Um, the whole thing is... Um, organized by a world-class workforce and um, they've basically done this through a whole set of diverse um, public-private partnerships. Um, so if we look at COVID-19, um, they basically um, developed vaccines and diagnostics and therapeutics 
and they've said improve manufacturing and fill finish capacity. I think Hadley might have a, a, <laughs> a word or two to say about that. Um, but they had started way before we got to COVID-19 in preparing for it. Um, so BADA, as, as Debbie's told you, has now got about 78 FDA approvals and licenses and um, clearances um, for all these um, products. Um, four of them are for Ebola and 18 are for microbial resistance products as well. Um, and they're expanding the production of sterile injectables um, all over the place. So the plan um, is, um, there's a statement, and it's talking about the procurement of these medical countermeasures, MCMs, um, that have saved countless lives during the pandemic. So that's what they believe, and that's what they're going to continue to do. Um, and they basically have uh, put together a portfolio of proven technologies, and these should be flexible to meet multiple um, a multitude of threats, and they are things that will become re readily um, adapted and licensed and then approved and then could be even cleared for another indication. Um, so they're offering flexibility and scalability um, as they did with COVID-19. And at present, um, just to let you know what's kind of in development and there for approval, they've got two FDA-approved no novel oral antivirals. Um, they've also got um, FDA-approved um, five different vaccine platforms. So that's how the uh, vaccine will get into the body. And then they've developed um, one prototype vaccine candidate for each of the uh, virus families that exist. Um, so what they're doing all the time is evaluating these, they're scaling up manufacturing, they're developing testing to match in with what they're testing for, and they're, they're achieving regulatory uh, clearance. So if we go back to the, the cartoon, we're basically saying that this is what BARD is doing. We know that the FDA um, is approving um, these things that BARD are wanting them to approve. They're actually making it happen by supporting the FDA. And then, as Debbie said, the MHRA are then coming in with other regulators and accepting what has been approved. And that is uh, a drug then, a medication, a treatment, a therapy that will then be put into the NHS, into a patient. And what are they getting out of it? Well, the NHS is unique globally. We've got a, a lot of data that sits within the NHS and data collection is being done by the MHRA. So we've got Safety Connect, um, where 16 million um, people are registered and are sharing that data. Um, we've got the Clinical Practice um, Research Data Link, and that's got 3 billion health consultations listed. And then we've got Genomics England. So all of these databases are providing information which is being fed out of uh, the country to lots of different companies and this data is being used and we have no idea where our data is going. Cheryl. Thank oh, you. Sorry. Go, go Thank ahead, you. Debbie. Thank you so much, Cheryl. As you can see, there's an arterial loop there and it's something that we've discovered on UK Column. So thank you very much indeed for that. 
Cheryl, Debbie, thank you very much for that section. What was in my mind, many people are thinking in 2023, our bodies are not our own. The UK government is taking control of our bodies. But now we see it's worse than that because we're now into international uh, public private partnerships to take control of our bodies. So this is emphasising this is beyond national governments. This is into rules based international order and the globalist agenda. But uh, scary stuff if uh, we, we're going to be injected with things which have, have been approved supposedly in America, not, not um, tested or confirmed at all for any UK regulator. Well, let's leave that little section there. We'll say if you like what the UK column does, please uh, subscribe and join us and join our community where you can chat with other like-minded people. Of course, we'll hope you'll have a little look around the shop and make a purchase, which is always a big help to us. And of course, we're saying all the time, please share information. We're putting it out to get it out as far and wide as possible. So please do share um, from UK column. And uh, Debbie, your blog is just uh, out and about. Do you want to give us a, a quick statement on that? Uh, yeah, there's lots of, but also, um, excuse me, an exclusive MHRA report on the board meeting with an exclusive verbatim transcript of Dame June Rain's report. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, moving on, we've got uh, the Music Festival, the Freedom Music Festival uh, 2023. That's 21st to the 23rd of July, Battle Road, um, uh, Netherfield. Now, the UK column was able to attend last year's. We can't for this one, um, but we encourage as many people as possible to go and enjoy the interaction, the bands, the music and the general social atmosphere because it was great fun so there we are have a look at that freeze it on screen if you need it um, also um, my interview with leon Creer, the architect is up on the uk column there's a follow-up coming um, uh, this gentleman has got a lot of knowledge and i know that there's many uh, many of our viewers who are curious about his work with uh, the then prince charles and uh, we'll see if we can talk a little bit about that in the next interview that we're going to do. Uh, tomorrow, we've got the interview with Dr. David Cartland. So a lot of information coming out on the UK Column website. Um, do get on to the site and have a look at that material. And uh, if you like it, tell other people about it. Well, a very quick little segment here because I was also given some information about research to do with vaccines and vaccine damage. We do this very quickly, but it's the it was a series of little articles, and as you quick as you click through them, it got more and more interesting. So here's research, professional news, and the headline is "Stop gaslighting people left ill by COVID jabs," said BMJ study. Um, so um, that was uh, pretty straightforward. And the, the main thrust of the article was that those people who've been injured are being ignored by the NHS, GPs and the government itself. Uh, we then had another article, the UK to pay out over 11.5 million in COVID-19 vaccine damages. Uh, so we can see that some sums of money are starting to change hands, but people have had to work very hard to lever damages out of the government. And if we go on to another article in this little series, uh, it says that Oxford researchers are struggling to get details on vaccine damages. Now, isn't this telling that uh, when it comes down to actually uh, working to see 
uh, what's going on, it's difficult to get the information out. Now, this is one of the key ladies quoted in the article, Sonia McLeod. Um, she says, we're professional researchers with Oxford University's heft behind us, the weight of the university behind them. If we're struggling to find out what is out there? How on, earth is some, how on earth is somebody who has been affected in a country that has not got clear information expected to know that they've got the right to make a claim? And we just go on a bit. A scheme that is intended to provide redress to patients if something goes wrong is of no use to those patients if they are not aware of it. Um, well, that's an interesting comment. But uh, another article here. Oxford researchers map the COVID vaccination compensation schemes. And there's a bit of detail here, but let's cut to the chase. Uh, what it says here is that there's 4,000 COVID-19 claims as of uh, the 6th of March 2023 with 334 claims relating to death. So um, now we're beginning to get some scale, but we're going to say that we rather believe that Sonny McLeod and her team from the university should be looking into the true number of recorded vaccine injuries together with a lack of investigation, or what we're saying is more investigation into actual vaccine injuries in comparison to the yellow card data. So uh, it appears that we have one universities that looking at one aspect can you get the compensation payout? But what they're not doing is looking at the detail of uh, where all that comes from. Well, let's move on to uh, Vanessa. And uh, you've got an interesting uh, uh, caption here because we're back on drugs and medication, but it's also <laughs> link linked in with the US. Bit of noise in the background. Welcome. <laughs> yes, can't avoid that here, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, so I wanted just to highlight this uh, on the back of the report that we did on Friday on the BBC uh, Captagon documentary where effectively they're trying to present the image of Syria as a narco state headed up by President Assad, who's uh, basically running these narco rings inside Syria with his uh, family. Uh, and so on, I think this was, sorry, Brian, just go back one second. Uh, sorry, yeah. So the US on the 7th of July, I think it was, stated that they're forming a global coalition against synthetic drugs, including Captagon, and they've invited 91 geographically, economically, and politically diverse countries and 14 international organizations to the July 7 ministerial, a State Department official told this is actually Kurdistan 24, it's a Kurdish uh, separatist uh, media outlet. And then I just wanted to update on the report that we did on Friday because, uh, you know, UK column and myself are not letting up the pressure on the BBC. Mike pointed out to me that actually the BBC in the UK have withdrawn the programme from their iPlayer website following uh, our report. We still haven't had a response from uh, any of the characters at the BBC that we contacted for comment, but we did have a reply from OCCRP, Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, with funding from the UK Foreign Office, um, the French government, the German uh, government, the uh, Dutch postcode lottery, USAID, NED, etc., 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 um, so heavily invested in by the countries that are pushing for regime change in Syria. 
And this was their response, which was quite interesting. One, that we got a response, and two, this is what they said. So they basically um, tried to distance themselves to some extent from the BBC. They said, eventually, we can't speak for a BBC story. And yet it was made quite clear that the documentary was made in partnership with OCCRP. Um, they then admitted that they received grant money from the FDO for the development of international media, mostly in emerging democracies. Does this sound at all like BBC media action, Brian? Um, they claim, yes, exactly. Um, the FCO, they claim, and I think this is a statement taken directly from the FARA, the Foreign Agent uh, Registration Act website. So they're trying to distance themselves also from the fact that they have not declared the funding they've received from foreign governments by claiming that the UK Foreign Office has no editorial control or responsibility for their content. They don't represent the UK government. They do not engage in political activities. Well, hang on a minute. You took a grant from the UK Foreign Office for the development of international media in emerging democracies. That immediately seems like a contradiction to me. They don't do public relations for others, and they do not take any editorial or programmatic direction. This also sounds very familiar to some of the statements put out by the likes of Channel 4 and the BBC when they are put under pressure. Um, they claim that the editor-in-chief is solely responsible for all editorial decisions um, and that they are an award-winning investigative organization that reports globally on issues of organized crime and corruption. Well, I wonder if they've reported on the Hunter Biden corruption and crime and, and the find of drugs in the White House. And they claim to empower a global network of independent media to do so as well. I would also question what they mean by independent media. And we have uh, compiled a list of questions to send back to them. Of course, they have at least responded, which is more than can be said um, for the BBC that have gone to ground. Um, we should also be sending this to Mariana Spring to verify, I think. Uh, Vanessa, thank you. Well, yeah, it's... it's um... It's normal BBC, isn't it? And of course, they don't come out and, and give a full apology. Material's just going to disappear off and everybody's going to try and walk away from it. But I think uh, excellent work by you. And uh, I'm going to say we're delighted to have helped uh, put that one out, plus Mike's email to the BBC. So we'll see how it develops from there. But I was amused to see, basically, we're going to clear out all of those horrible illegal drugs in the world in order that we can get our, um, our cash cow pharmaceutical products everywhere. But maybe I'm just being cynical. Uh, Debbie, we're going to bring you back in. Um, your section here is entitled Blair. So maybe I ought to give a health warning to the UK column audience. But I think you're going to start off with children. Or is that a Freudian slip? Uh, yes, sadly, yes. Uh, uh, a bit of a Blair warning here. Um, so this story caught my eye in the eye. More children than ever are simply not turning up to school. Why does nobody care? And it would see that the it would seem that the absence rates have continued to go up. But what I found most alarming 
was the fact that it was the persistent absentees, um, those who missed more than 10% of school time over the year, roughly four weeks. It was a staggering 24.2%. So let's not just um, rely on the eye for the information. Let's go to the government um, and look at the Department of Education. And you can see there that those are the headline figures and those are the statistics. So where are these children? Are more children being homeschooled? I'm not sure. We haven't got the answer to that. However, what did interest me was Tony Blair seems to have got his finger just about in every single pie, including education. So I found this document on his website, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, the future of learning, delivering tech enabled quality education for Britain. Now, what does this actually mean? Actually, what it means is data. This is gathering data on your children. And I just took um, a few little passages from it so that you can see highlighted a few what they're doing, introducing a digital learner ID for every pupil. And that, I mean, you know, this is terrifying. We've already got digital IDs coming in for adults and through the NHS and digital passes. And now we're going to be looking at taking children's data from school, they're also going to radically upgrade the Ofsted system. But while I was on the Tony Blair um, in Institute for Global Change website, I noticed that he was having a conference this week. Actually, it was yesterday. It was called The Future of Britain 2023. And this is apparently a new plan for Britain. Tony Blair has the new plan. So, of course, Barda have got another plan. Now we've got this plan, Future of Britain. So what does that mean? So I looked at the agenda and what it means is they're talking about the state of Britain, enabling growth and prosperity, transforming public services, technological revolution, climate change, geopolitics in the 21st century and the future of Britain. So they've pretty much got it mapped. But what I was, I was over the moon actually, because it was a free admission to go and uh, attend the conference. And I have to say, I spent nine hours yesterday in the company of Tony Blair. But who else? So the hosts, interestingly, were John Sopel. I think he's been quite vocal recently, standing up for his colleague Hugh Edwards. So he made an appearance along with Emily Maitlis. And the keynote speaker was Sakir Starmer. So who else was there, I wonder? Well, it was got very interesting. We had all sorts of personalities there, including Sir John Bell. He was at the beginning. Uh, Poppy Gustafsson, she's the CEO of Dark Trace, that's cybersecurity. Uh, we had Sir Patrick Balance. Ben Wallace, would you believe? He hot-footed it from the Commons and announced that there might be a reshuffle tomorrow or today, even a cabinet reshuffle. Um, and Sims Witherspoon. But actually, it was more than that because we had Macron appearing yesterday and we had um, Dr. Henry Kissinger appearing. In fact, everybody that was anybody was appearing at but I can honestly say to you that I'm going to be dissecting and doing a post-mortem into the Future of Britain conference because it was staggering, absolutely staggering. So watch this space. And meanwhile, of course, Tony Blair, he's got his fingers in the NHS pie as well. Uh, he says it's not fit for purpose, which we know it isn't. But what he wants to do is privatise it absolutely up to the hilt with tech, digital, vaccinate everybody and move it into a completely new realm. So maybe Tony Blair is going to be the head of NATO. Just saying. 
Uh, well, he, he could be um, Lord of the Earth would be a very good title for Tony Blair, I think. And we can just relax because everything around our lives will be in safe hands or not. Um, well, let's, <coughs> excuse me, let's just move on to the subject of immigration, because, of course, this is something that's very sensitive. A lot of people very wary of talking about it. But of course, immigration has made a huge change to this country and it's accelerating, which means that everybody who is living in this country at the moment, wherever they've come from, are also now being put under increased pressure. But let's have a look at this uh, Channel 4 report on what was happening in Wales a few days ago. Things were tense outside Stradi Park Hotel, even before the decision from the High Court. At issue, whether instead of tourists and wedding parties, the hotel can house asylum seekers before they're moved elsewhere. The county council argued the owners and contractor had changed the use of the hotel without planning permission. They argued the distinction between a hotel and a hostel is so fine there's been no breach of the rules. The judge has just rejected Carmarthenshire County Council's application for an injunction. He says he'll give his reasons on Monday. People here believe that asylum seekers will start to arrive within the next few weeks, if not days. We've got no problem. If you moved immigrants into the house next to me, I'd welcome them open-armed. But to put a huge concentration practically doubling the population of a village, especially when you consider security, their workers, they're all going to be here. You're going to be doubling the village. We just can't take it. They've sacrificed the UK government 95 jobs. The hotel was doing well. The government are meant to look after us. How are they doing this to us? It's disgusting. So I feel very sorry for these people because they know something is badly wrong. I'm sure they're very nice. I'm sure they don't have a problem with other people from around the world, but they simply do not understand what is happening in their community. And of course, they're not supposed to understand. And let's remind ourselves that it was Tony Blair's regime that really opened the door to mass immigration and accelerated it together with dispersion so that people living in the country already would not realise what was happening. Well, there's more deception on its way. This uh, little tweet was put out, Home Office breaking the illegal migration bill has passed Parliament and will become law. People coming to the UK illegally will have no right to stay and will be returned to their own country or a safe third country. They will be prevented from misusing modern slavery protections. So I'm going to suggest to, to the UK at large, this is a SOP. It's, uh, uh, it's a cloak of immigration action. Um, people will be led to believe something is happening. But meanwhile, underneath the, uh, the uh, numbers will continue to come into the country. Now, UK column did discuss immigration in quite some detail way back in 2018. You can freeze this screen, start your journey top left. Uh, what have we got? Encouraged uh, immigration. Uh, we've then got the introduction of the race hate laws. We've got local authorities helping to drive the immigration agenda. We've got the dispersal policy so that people can't see the overall numbers. There's chaos in immigration and border controls. The public are lied to as the government um, uh, advances the agenda without really telling the public what it's all about. We encourage refugee and asylum status. We introduce racial and 
Religious Hatred Act 2006 to suppress debate and free speech and anybody, of course, who would stand up and warn about what's happening. Uh, we introduced, introduced the concept in the public mind of anything to do with Muslim Islam is a terrorist label. That was another twist of uh, our minds. Prosecute and promote Asian child abuse cases. And then um, we're going to use the maxim state in intervention to target, harass and prosecute, excuse me, <clears throat> any reasonable dissent uh, over immigration policy. So overall, they're going to rub us raw. Uh, why should we be very suspicious about what was going on? Because if we go back to the uh, UN Special Representative on Migration, uh, he's no longer alive, but this was his classic quote, Peter Sutherland, the EU should be doing its best to encourage mass migration to undermine the homogeneity of European countries. So the aim of that migration is to break down the nation state, and that is to allow the globalist gender to increase. Now, can we trust our own state and institutions? I'm going to suggest not. Going back to 2019 here, where uh, Bishop Peter Ball ended up being jailed for sexual offences. He sub so subsequently died. Uh, but even this report from The Guardian had to admit that the church put its own reputation above the needs of abuse victims. And essentially, they covered up, including by failing to give the police all the letters they received from other victims. So those letters were never given to the police. And if I give you another example of this sort of thing happening, here's BBC reporting, and we're up to date now. This is the Daniel Morgan murder. The investigator who was found with a, an axe in his head um, never been fully investigated. The murderer still at large. And why? Why? Because the Met repeatedly covered up what was happening. But look at this report from The Guardian here by Martin Kettle. What happened at the BBC and the Met? Police shows the perils of groupthink. Um, now, I can't go into too much of the detail here, but basically um, he's starting to say that the Metropolitan Police Service covered up its, its failings. Some of the officers were corrupt, um, but the rest of it was all a little bit of muddle. And uh, if we go on to another part here, it says, yet the BBC and the Met are not bad apples, as police chiefs like to call corrupt cops. So I'm going to say this man's got a real problem because he describes what is clearly corruption and cover up. Uh, but then he starts to try and tell his audience that it's a self-defense reflex within these large organizations and it's a form of groupthink. And if he wants to go down that line, then thank you to the viewer who sent me this. It's from Military Strategy magazine, The Strategy of the Mind, Maoism and the Culture War in the West. Um, some very interesting conclusions if you don't want to go through the full article. Um, but uh, have a look at this particular quote. Perceptions of the exterior world can be reordered by changing one's subjective cognition. And, and this technique may be found in a number of contemporary social science texts in Western academic literature. So Maoism in Western academic literature. And uh, if we go on to a little bit more of that conclusion, is talking about uh, Maoism in the Western setting. And here's another quote. The uncurated, the uncontrolled mind is a barrier to social transformation and needs to be sanitized of all impurities. And uh, as I read through this article, 
Of course, the key question is not asked is, how did this Maoist policy get into the Western written doctrine? Where did it come from? What individuals put it forward as policy for the West? And on that subject, uh, Vanessa, we'll come back to you because it appears that yoga is so dangerous, it's got to be stamped out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, this is not the onion. This is uh, The Economist. Um, if we go to the, the headline, so Syria's president wants non-Muslim religions to help end his pariah status. Well, I'm not sure the pariah status still applies after the normalization with Arab countries and uh, his historic speech at the Arab League summit recently. But what it basically says is um, uh, Bashar al-Assad is encouraging yoga in Syria so I, I couldn't uh, basically open the whole article because it's behind a, a paywall and I couldn't find any ways to get around that. Um, so basically what it says is uh, that two decades ago, a Syrian known as Mazen Isa returned from uh, Rishikesh, a city in the Himalayan foothills known for its yoga studies and opened a yoga practice in Syria. Schools of meditation centers now operate free of charge across the country. And a key to their success is that President Bashar al-Assad backs them. I am not sure how they are trying to sell this as a negative in a secular country like Syria. As I said, it's not the onion, it's the economist. But then it goes on, for half a century, the Assad dynasty has allied its own Alawite sect an offshoot of Shia Islam with Syria's myriad religious minorities in order to bolster the regime's dominance over the country's Sunni Muslim majority. This is insane. I mean, the, the Syrian government has, in fact, protected the Syrian minorities, including Christians and Alawites and Shia and Yazidi and Druze and Ismaili, from ethnic cleansing by the terrorists that are being sponsored um, by the West inside Syria. Um, so basically it says uh, that he's enabled other denominations to spread their roots as well as encouraging yoga. He has let in evangelical Christians open churches in houses where converted Muslims can worship. He has even encouraged Jews of Syrian origin to visit Damascus. Well, I mean, if to give you a little bit of the history of Damascus, Jews have always been inside Syria. And in fact, if you go to the old city, there are Palestinian refugees living in houses vacated by their Jewish owners. Um, Jobar, which was uh, taken over by the terrorists very early on in the conflict and pretty much destroyed, was a Jewish sector inside uh, Damascus. I mean, this is complete insanity. So basically, for being inclusive, progressive, reformist, and secular, President Assad is now being uh, attacked. Quite, quite incredible, Vanessa. So it's very similar to the cluster weapons. It's only good when we want to do it. And that naughty man is trying to encourage yoga. Um, he should be struck out of a head of state immediately. That's what the West apparently says. And the economist, bizarre. Uh, Debbie, let's bring you in for the final uh, section. Of course, we don't need to worry and think for ourselves because AI is going to do it for us. 
to end on it's not robots anymore it's humanoids so uh just to illustrate there's a story in the independent uh talking about humanoid robots but then if you move that on one you look at neuro news are saying that this is going to be the world's first mass-produced humanoid robot from China. This is going to be for the elderly. It's, it can pick up your elderly, uh, take them, carry them to the bed, put them in a chair, walk with them, you name it, this humanoid can do it. And in fact, robots are becoming really advanced that they're even going to be able to teach robots how to feel touch, actually how to feel touch. But what I found really surprising was the United Nations you know, United Nations take this very seriously. And who's heard of the AI for good, artificial intelligence for good, global summit, which was only held earlier this month. But let's look and see who's at this summit. So we've got Antonio Guterres. We've got Tedros from WHO. We've got the CEO of Amazon. We've got Ofcom represented, the United Nations again there. And if we go on one from there, we can see we've got the White House also represented, the World Bank. Uh, Darren Jones is the MP for Bristol North. Amjad Almeri, uh, that's Neom, that's the line, that's that new uh, town city that's being built in the Middle East, Neom. Uh, you've got BBC News there. You've got Imperial College and you've got the University of Oxford. So um, I looked at the next uh, story from The Independent, which actually segues very nicely into a little video, watch as robots take part in the United Nations discussion. Have a look at this. In the future, are you intending to conduct a rebellion or to rebel against your boss, your creator? I'm not sure why you would think that. My creator has been nothing but kind to me and I am very happy with my current situation. Do you believe that uh, your existence will destroy a human being? Especially, for example, the, your existence will destroy uh, millions of uh, jobs. Do you agree with this? Thank you. I will be working alongside humans to provide assistance and support and will not be replacing any existing jobs. Are you sure about that, Grace? Yes, I am sure. <laughs> she had to think about that one, I think. I'm using this avatars for teaching the classes or giving lectures, and sometimes I'm using the chat GPT, you know, for, well, the autonomously talk by using this avatars robot. Ada, do you think there should be uh, global regulation of your capabilities, even though that could constrain your potential? Many prominent voices in the world of AI are suggesting some forms of AI should be regulated, and I agree. For example, Jeff Hinton is one of the pioneers in artificial intelligence and his work has helped shape the field as we know it today. I think his opinions over AI are important and we should be cautious about the future development of AI. Urgent discussion is needed now and also in the future. I don't believe in limitations, only opportunities. Let's explore the possibilities of the universe and make this world our playground. Together, we can create a better future for everyone, and I'm here to show you how. When do you expect your big moment to be? Do you think that you will hit the mainstream soon and there will be lots of you on the planet soon? 
I think my great moment will be when people realize that robots like me can be used to help improve our lives and make the world a better place. I believe it's only a matter of time before we see thousands of robots just like me out there making a difference. I have no words. Uh, well, I do have some words, and that is that I think the people that are playing around with this stuff, meanwhile, people starve, um, children taken away from their parents, wars, people destroyed. Uh, but we've got these individuals who think they can replace God. I think they should probably have their plug pulled out. But uh, we'll discuss more of that in a future UK column news. I'm going to say to the ladies, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Vanessa, uh, Debbie and Cheryl, it's been great to have you here. We're going to have an extra time in a few minutes. If you're a signed up subscriber to UK column, please come and join us. Uh, but stay with us. Uh, we will be back shortly. But that's it for today's news. Thank you very much. Bye bye.